0: have a Bible, you can open up to Judges 19, Judges 19. Just want to uh, give you a heads up, if you have young children in the service, uh, Judges 19 is a bit PG, maybe even to the R rating, and you might wanna put them in the kids area, which is open, and we have kids workers there and check in people still. Uh, so you, it's a uh, heavy, heavy text, and so just as a, as a warning, if you have young kids in here, we have we a have kids area open all the way up through sixth grade, and it might be a good idea to have them in the kids' area this morning. Um, as I said, we're in Judges chapter 19 today, which is a, uh, a, a difficult and, and um, disturbing text. We've been preaching through the book of Judges now for a little while, and as we've been going through it, we've come up to uh, the very end. Um, this, this text that we're looking at, Judges 19, is uh, really Judges 19 through 21, one big sermon. Uh, But we're only going to do Judges 19 today, and then I'm going to do 20 and 21 next week. It's really one sermon, half of it today, and the other half will be next week. Um, But as we're looking at Judges 19 uh, today, I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, we'll start in Judges 19. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this morning uh, you'll help us all work our way through a, a very difficult text and that uh, as we examine your word, we know that 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is true, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training and righteousness. And so this is your word, and so this difficult text is profitable, even though it's difficult, Difficult to read, difficult to listen to, difficult to process, um, and even more difficult on the other end uh, of counseling, but you're a God of all comfort and a God of all grace. And so would you come now, and as we work our way through this, Holy Spirit, please be present. Be present with me as I try to speak gently and pastorally and kindly, um, and be present for all of us, including myself with everyone here, as we hear these difficult Uh, things that are said and um, for those that have had traumatic experiences that you would come alongside them and help them understand the doctrine of expiation that declares us cleansed by God. That there's no shame anymore because of Jesus. Help us remember that King Jesus is the ultimate husband for us. And he never ever ever mistreats us. I just pray for a special measure of grace this morning for us all, God. I pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, to help us understand Judges 19, what I want to do is start off by reading Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It's the very last verse in the book of Judges. And it really helps us understand what's going on. So it says this, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, it is wicked and immoral and terrible. We are not uh, capable, any of us, them or any human being, because we're all in the line of Adam, capable of doing what's right if we do what's right in our own eyes. Without, they didn't have a king to guide them morally to know what the Lord would want. And if we don't have our king Jesus and looking to his word to know what he wants and how he wants us to live, we will also do what's right in our own eyes. We might think it's okay, but it can end up being absolutely morally reprehensible reprehensible and evil, and that's what we will see here in the book of Judges. <clears throat> as we've been going through the book of Judges, we've talked about how it starts off well, and then as you go, there's a, a downward spiral of depravity, and so that when you get to the end of the book of Judges, you realize this is just awful, and that's the way the book of Judges is written. It's written to start off okay, and by the end of the book, it's just, it's just pure evil, um, and along the way throughout the book of Judges, where the people of Israel are acting in just abhorrent ways, sinful ways, God will send a judge to them. And each judge gets worse as you go. They start out okay and they get, they get evil. They get terrible towards the end. Um, I wouldn't say evil. They get terrible towards the end. And so as we finish chapter 16, the last judge, Samson dies. Not a great guy. Not a great guy by any stretch. Um, He dies, and so the last five chapters are still there, and you're like, what's the deal with the epilogue? Why is chapters 17 through 21 here if all of the judges are dead? Well, as we saw last week in chapters 17 and 18, what we see is when there is no king and when there is no judge, deliverer in in Israel, we see the chaos that happens in their worship. Their worship is... uh, wrong. They worship false religions. They practice syncretism where they take their following God and they adopt all the pagan worship and they just put it all into one big kind of lump thing. And that's what we see in Judges 17 and 18. The chaos that ensues with worship whenever they don't have someone there like a king to show them but then when you move into chapters 19 and 21 through 21, it's a second story in the epilogue. And, and if we see in 17 chaos in worship, and tw- 19 through 21, we say chaos in morality. That their <clears throat> practice is, um, and the way they live their lives is just, I wouldn't even just say chaotic. It's, it's reprehensibly evil. And so... Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 25 says, they do what's right in their own eyes. And that is the height of the problem of the text that we see today. Not just for the, for the people of God, not just for the Israelites in chapter 19, but for us. If we do what is right in our own eyes, we will end up just like them. We might not do the same things as them, but our hearts will be just like theirs. One commentator looking at this last section says, "These this verse Expresses the ultimate perversity of every man, demanding the right to be his own Lord, insisting on following the dictates of his own glands. The problem is not sins, but sin. It's not that we do sins, it's the fact that we are who we are as sinners. Outside of Christ, we are morally bankrupt people. And so the declara- this 2125 is a uh, declaration of independence in a wrong way, where we say viciously, um, Yes, I want to be like God, but I want to call my own shots. And in this chapter, the root of this sin displays itself in one of the most darkest, grossest, raunchiest forms in the Bible. And so what we see in chapter 19, we shouldn't say is is them. It's not me, it's them. Because it's something that we're all capable of. What we're going to see in chapter 19 is what we should remember is, as we've been going through the book of Judges, God has told people, there's an enemy around you you're being oppressed by pagans. They're all around and they're the bad people and you should get rid of them in your life and live purely. But in, in 17 through 21, we move away from the problem being external to the problem being internal. Now, in chapters 17 through 21 and even in 19, what we see is not pagan sinners doing bad things against Israel. <clears throat> what we see is Israel, the people of God, doing horrible, evil things to Israel. We see the people of God sinning against the people of God. So it's no longer external oppression. It's internal. And so it's a, it's a major shift when we get to uh, these last chapters to see sin is inside the people of God. And it's not just small sin. It's wicked, awful, terrible sin. <clears throat> in these chapters, the, each man who does what's right in his own eyes are not the pagans They're the Israelites, the covenant men. The writer of Judges wants us to see that Israel, God's people, have become depraved and that they're no different than the Sodomites of Genesis 19. Judges 19 is a replay of Genesis 19, but it's not the pagans doing it. It's Israel, and it's worse than the Sodomites. So in Genesis 19, I want to read it before we go to Judges 19 so that you see just how similar they are. And Genesis 19, which we all should know that God abhors what happens in Sodom. And he, he destroys the whole city uh, because of it. But these are the pagans. Judges, I'm sorry, Genesis 19 says, verse 1. Two angels appeared and came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot, who was uh, someone who knew Yahweh, who knew God, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And Lot saw these two angels and he knew that they were from God and he, he rose to, met, to meet them and he bowed himself to them and to his face to the earth. And he says to them, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. In other words, don't stay here. Come with me, angels, to my house and spend the night with me and wash your feet that you may rise up and go on your way tomorrow <clears throat> during the day. And they said, the angel said, no, we're going to spend the night in the town square. We're going to stay right here in the middle. And Lot pressed him and said strongly, basically, don't stay here at night. You don't stay here in the town square at Sodom. Come with me. Turn aside. Come to my own house. I'll make a feast, unleavened bread. And they said, okay. And they came with him and they ate. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, all the men, surrounded this house because they saw these men, these angels, and they just thought they were men, going into the house. And they called out to Lot and they're beating on the door. Where are the men that came into your house tonight? Bring them out to us that we can know them. This means that they want to have sex with them. Verse six, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. That in itself is a good stop. If he would have just stopped there, Lot would have been uh, saying true things and holding out a glimmer of hope. But the next verse turns wicked. So instead of just saying, don't do this evil thing, you shouldn't, men of Sodom, want to have homosexual sex with these men, it's wrong and wicked and evil, stop. He does this verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters that are virgins, that have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and instead of having these two angels, you can do to my daughters anything you please. Just don't do it to these two men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. Now, this is wickedly abhorrent and evil. God sees this as wickedly abhorrent and evil, and eventually, um, luckily, for all of those in Genesis 19... uh, The angels make all the men outside go blind, so they're just running around and they don't know what's going on. Lot gets his whole family out and God just destroys the whole city of Sodom uh, because of this, because they had uh, this desire to want to do this. That was pagans wanting to do that to God's man, Lot. When we get to Judges 19, the writer is certainly want us to see, as he writes, that what happened in Genesis 19 is happening here and it's worse. It's worse. And and that those were pagans doing it. Look what Israel does. Look what the people of God do. They're worse than the Sodomites, they're worse than the people of Sodom. Um, The story will be difficult to follow as we look in chapter 19 because everyone is unnamed. No one actually is given a name. We have the Levite, we have the concubine, we have the father in law, we have the Ephraimite, the old man, but no one is given names, and this is intentional. As Tim Keller says, there's anonymity strong throughout chapter 19, and it's meant to suggest that this is not just how these people are, but it's how all people were in Israel. Men, all men, not just these men, acted like this, and they treated all women like this. So it's a very dark picture, and that we'll see here that the men of Israel, and this should scare us, because the men of Israel are the people of God. We're the people of God. And the whole point that we're supposed to draw is if the people of God act like this, then we are certainly capable of it as well without the Holy Spirit in our lives trusting in our king and following our king. We will come just like these people. So there's a a certain uh, caution for us all. But we'll see here that men of Israel are not just like the people of Sodom, but they're worse the people of Sodom. As I said, chapters 19 to 21 is one chapter, or really one sermon, one big idea. Chapter 19 shows us the guilt of Benjamin, and then we'll see the rest later. There's no notes today, it's just we're looking at through the text. Starting in verse 1, and he's wanting to remind us in the very first sentence that there was no king in Israel, just like we read in 21, 21 25, and when there is no king of Israel, everyone does it in their own eyes. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, that helps us see. Had there been a king, this decadent immorality would not have happened. God would have sent the king to say this is evil and it should not happen. But because that's not happening, they think they're doing right. A certain Levite, a Levite is a priest. A priest is supposed to be holy and set apart and supposed to follow God's law and know God's law and follow God's word and never ever go and do things against God's law. But since he's doing what's right in his own eyes, he's swept into pagan culture. And since he's swept into pagan culture, this priest is living just like the pagans. And so what does he do? He takes a concubine. You can see a certain Levite priest was sojourning in the parts of the hill of the country of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem and, and Judah. Concubine is not a word we commonly use. A concubine is not exactly a prostitute, but it's not exactly a wife. It's a, it's a blend of the two. It's a second class wife in his life that's mostly just a sex object to him. So he's married to her. So in verse three, you'll see that it refers to him as her husband. But you'll also see in verse 27, it refers to, her, refers to him as her master. So he owns her like a sex object, but he's also married to her in a sense because he's her husband. He's, uh, she is his concubine. Right off the bat, we see this is wicked. A Levite, a priest, should not have a concubine. It should not be the case. But again, they're doing what's right in their own eyes and it's just one <clears throat> Wicked display after another as we go through chapter 19. So he has a concubine. in verse two, the concubine was unfaithful to him. She committed adultery, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem and Judah, and was there for some four months. So uh, being unfaithful and running away from your husband in this particular time, it was not permissible. Uh, women in this particular time should not do that. They should not be unfaithful, nor should they be unfaithful today, nor should men. Uh, But running away, that shouldn't happen either. If he owns her, she's not permitted. Now, I'm not endorsing this by any means. Um, We should never think of women as our property. He does. Uh, And so she runs away. This was not permissible in their time. And so she runs away for four months. It's interesting that she's gone for four months. As Tim Keller says, this verse shows us that it is neither loving nor a lasting relationship that she's gone for four months. Four months passing by signifies to us that he was not too bothered about having his concubine back until after he eventually either wants the sect back or wants the status of having his concubine or both. And so after four months, he realizes, well, I, I, I want her back. Not that he loves her, or else he would have gone after four minutes or four seconds. But four months later, verse three, then her husband arose and went after her, and he speaks kindly to bring her back. And he also had a servant with him. You can see in verse three, and he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. This male servant, this younger male servant, will uh, be crucial later on in the, in, the, in the chapter, much like the angels were in Genesis 19. And so she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl saw him, she He came with joy uh, to meet him. And verse four, it says, and the father-in-law, the girl's father made him stay and he remained there for three days. So as we get to the father's hospitality in verses three to 10, in this particular time period, uh, hospitality was an absolute must. You had to be extremely hospitable to guests that came in. It was part of the culture. But what we see here is the father-in-law displaying more hospitality than what's even normal. It's good, it's fine, we should, we should do that too. We should be as hospitable as, poss- hospitable as possible. But this father-in-law is extremely hospitable, more so overly hospitable than what would be even normal for this particular culture. Um, and likely, it's for a couple reasons. One, he doesn't want his daughter to die. Uh, in this particular time period, if a concubine committed adultery against her husband, the husband had every right just to kill her. And so he doesn't want his daughter to die. But more so, probably The father in law doesn't want to have shame upon him for having a daughter that cheated on her husband. And so he's trying to escape the public shame of it. And so he's being overly hospitable to this Levite so that the Levite won't kill his daughter because he doesn't want shame brought upon him. So he doesn't want to avoid, he wants to avoid the disgrace of having a daughter that commits adultery. And when we see this, Tim Keller says, "There's nothing in the text." So w- let's read the text three through ten. We can see the over hospitableness and how long the father-in-law tries to get him to stay over and over, stay another night. And then we'll we'll make some comments. Verse three. Uh, the husband arose and went to her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. And he had with him his servant, a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into the father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came to meet him with joy. And the father-in-law, the girl's father made him stay. And he remained with him three days. Stay longer, stay longer, stay longer. And so they ate and drank and they spent the night there. On the fourth day, they arose to go in the morning. And as he prepared to go, the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to him, Hey, it's been long day. You should just stay the night again. Be pleased to stay the night and let your heart be merry. When the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him until he spent the night. And then on the fifth day, he arose early to go in the morning. And the girl's father said, "Strengthen your heart. Wait till the day declines." And so they ate both of them. And, the, and when the man and his concubine and the servant rose up to depart, the father-in-law said, hey, stay. The days come to a close. You should stay. Spend the night. And behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you will arise early in the morning and go for your journey and go home. So he's just trying to continually get him to stay so, he could st- so that um, he could be overly hospitable so he wouldn't do what the law allowed to his daughter. Now, They're going to leave here eventually. You can see in the next in chapter ten, the man would not spend the night. And he rose and he departed and arrived opposite of of a different city. Tim Keller, uh, in in a smart way, points out to us that there's nothing in the text that shows us that the woman was persuaded to go home with the Levite. Instead, it's the the husband, the Levite, and the father saying you should go. And he points out, Keller says, both the father. And the husband treat this woman as an object. One, the father, wants to just avoid disgrace. The other, the Levite husband, wants to just secure his sexual favors. Neither one of them really care about the woman herself. Instead, they just think of it as an object. One is an object to keep me away from public disgrace. The other is just an object to give me sexual favors. Neither one of them understand Genesis 1 that male and female are created both in the image of God, therefore to have equal dignity, value, and worth. And so men of remedy, let's not be like them. Don't ever treat women as an object. Always realize the creation principle that every woman is created in the image of God and therefore just like us, equal in dignity and value and worth. Christians above all people should not ever treat our sisters and our daughters this way as objects or sexual objects, instead, we're to cherish them, the way that the Lord would want us to protect them as as husbands and brothers, the way that He would want us to. Never ever, just as someone as an object that avoids disgrace from us or gives us sexual favors, our wives are not resources to be able to take care of us and our children for us, and they're not uh, live-in roommates that we can have sex with. Instead. They are precious gifts from the Lord that we are to cherish because they are created in God's image just like us and therefore therefore, of equal dignity, value, and worth. Now, the role of husband and wife, it's not the same. Men and women are not the same. I'm not saying they're the same. We have different roles, but we still have the exact same dignity. We still have the same image of God, so we're equal in dignity and value and worth. So here we see in, chap- in, in verse 10, that the Levite is not going to stay. He stayed long enough, and he said, we're gonna go. And so when we get to verse 10, uh, we're presented with this issue. Is it going to be the town of Jebus? I'm not mispronouncing Jesus. That's what it's pronounced, J-E-B-U-S. It's inhabited by the Jebusites. So is it going to be the city of Jebus, or is it going to be the city of Gibeah? Where are we going to go? We're leaving the father-in-law's house, and we're going back home, and on the way on the sojourn, we're gonna have to stop we're going to either pick Jebus or Gibeah. Jebus is where all the pagans are. It's where all those that are still in the land of Canaan. And so there's a lot of uh, terrible things going on. Or Gibeah. Gibeah is a land of the Benjamites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, this is Israel. These, this just to be the trusted city because we're Israelites. They're Israelites. These are Israelites. That's the more... Uh, rational, logical place we should stay is Gibeah. And so they're presented with this issue, Jebus or Gibeah, what will they choose? Well, they're going to choose Gibeah. And let me just say, uh, whichever one they choose, neither is safe. If they went to Jebus, it would still be unsafe. But the point is they went to Gibeah and it's just like Jebus and it shouldn't be. The, The people of God's city should not look like Jebus. It should be different. But the point of the text is it's not different. Both are unsafe For this woman. Verse 10. But the man who got would not spend the night. He rose up and he departed. And he arrived opposite Jebus. That is Jerusalem. Why does it say that is Jerusalem? Because as we've talked about as we go through Judges. Whenever they entered into the promised land. As they left Egypt. God told all the 12 tribes. There's. Pagans in your city, I've given each one of you an allotment of your inheritance, and what you're supposed to do is go in there and destroy everybody and let that be your land. It's yours, go to it. And so he told the Benjamites, go into what would one day be Jerusalem, it's yours. The Jebusites are there these, uh, that are a part of Canaan. Kill them all, get rid of them. You don't want this wicked oppression around you. And as we see in Judges chapter one, verse 21, uh, that the Benjamites did not obey. Chapter 121 says, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And so Jebus, that is Jerusalem, is inhabited by the Jebusites, which is really just the pagan Canaanites, because they weren't obedient in chapter 1. So as they're going, instead of going to Jebus, they're going to go to Gibeah. So you can see in verse 11, When they came near Jebus, that day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside and go to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And watch what the master says. He says, "No, no, no. We're not going to Jebus, to Jebus, where all the pagans are. It's better for us to go to a better city like Gibeah." It's so wrong-headed. Verse twelve. And the master said, "We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. We're going to pass on to Gibeah. We're going to go where they are." Now, what we see in the text is Gibeah. It's not as good as Jebus. It's just as bad, as a matter of fact, as we go. Gibeah is the new Sodom. Gibeah equals the new Sodom. But he thinks, oh, we'll be much better going to an Israelite land. You won't, because as we get to the end of Judges, the point is, all of Israel is acting wicked because they don't have a king. So we're not going to go here. Instead, we're going to go to Gibeah. And so it says, uh, verse 13, He said to you, his young man, come, let us draw near uh, and spend, spend the night at either Gibeah or Ramoth, So they're going to go to Gibeah. So verse 14. So they passed and went along the way. And the sun went down on them when they're at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So we notice the city that they're in belongs to one of the 12 tribes, which is Benjamin. And they turned aside to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And here it is. It's just really awkward. They went in and they sat down open in the, in the square of the city. Or no one took them into his house to spend the night. So, as custom, which we've already talked about, hospitality is really huge. So, when they walked into the city of Gibeah, the Benjamites, who were all the people of Israel, would have seen these Israelites and they should have said, Oh, you're an Israelite. We're an Israelite. You don't have anywhere to stay. Come stay with us. We don't do that, right? But in this particular city, we don't just invite strangers to stay with us. But in this culture, that's what they were supposed to do. But no one is. The the city of Gibeah is so rampantly evil, they're not even practicing some of the basic things of hospitality. The Gibeites are, are not even showing them, hey, I see you sitting here in the town square. Now, much like Genesis 19, sitting in the town square at night is a bad idea. Sitting in the town square of Gibeah, equally a bad idea and no one's showing them hospitality. No one's coming up to them and, so, and showing them. So the writer says, since the Gibeites, no, nobody's doing this, this no one's taking them to their house to spend the night. Who does it? Well, a man comes to him in verse 16 and says, behold, an old man was coming from work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. He was sojourning in Gibeah, the man of the place for Benjamites. So there they are sitting there. No one's taking them in, and there's An Ephraimite, who's also part of the 12 tribes, but he's not a Benjamite, comes up and he sees them. He goes, no one's taking care of you? Well, I'll take care of you. You can come to my house and you can be with me. What we should see here is this. If he's an Ephraimite, he's new to the community. And if he's new to the community, he understands that other new people also need to be acclimated quickly into the community as well. And it's the new people that are usually the ones that pick up on it. The Gibeites who've been there aren't. If we just make one side note of an application, that's, that's, this is a total application, it's not the meaning of the text, the writer of the book of Judges isn't trying to make this to be the meaning, but it is an application. Um, in churches, it's usually the newest people to the community that are more sensitive to new people, and so the ones that see that oh, this person's new, invite them in, it's the people that have been at the church for a long time that aren't as sensitive to new people and don't think about it. And so what we want at Remedy, and what I hear this time and time again, when I came to Remedy, everybody was so nice and they invited me in. That's good. We don't want just for the new people at Remedy to be uh, hospitable and friendly. We want everybody. As a matter of fact, uh, I would say we don't want to just be friendly and invite people into our conversation. We want to do that. Instead, we want to be hospitable and invite people into our lives. Not just the new people like this Ephraimite, but all of us who've been here since the church started. We want to all, when we see new people, invite people and not just into our conversation that morning. That's nice. We can do that. Invite them into the lobby when we see them. Hey, we're talking about whatever. Where are you from? Whatever. But also invite them into our lives. What do you like to do? Where are you from? You want to go out to lunch today? Maybe we can get together this week. We're inviting them in to know us, not just have a, you know, a 30-second conversation. But the Gibeites didn't do that, and so this man does it. Now, I'm not painting this man out as a hero. Uh, we'll see s- s- very soon that he's not a hero at all, uh, but nevertheless, uh, here we are. So they're in the open square in verse 15, and we know verse 20 tells us that uh, don't spend the night in the open square. Uh, and so just like Genesis 19, you shouldn't do it, and Judges 19, nor there sh- should you. Verse 16, and the old man was coming, From his field in the evening, he was from the hill country of Ephraim. He was sojourning in Gibeah. He's working there, and he uh, and it says the place the men of the place were the Benjamites. Now, the reason why it tells us that the men of the place were Benjamites is because it wants us to know uh, who it is that's going to carry out this evil thing that happens. Uh, The men of the place were Benjamites. Isn't just uh, informational. Instead, if you see. In verse 22, it's going to tell us something about these Benjamites. Uh, the men of the city, worthless fellows. Now, that's about as descriptive as the Bible wants us to see. But when it says worthless fellows, it means wickedly, wickedly evil. So it's the Benjamites who are the worthless fellows, the wicked, wicked, evil people. 17, verse 17. And he lifted up at his eyes and he saw the travel in the open square. And the old man said... Where are you going? So here's the conversation with the old man and the Levite and his concubine and the young male servant that's with him. Um, we're gonna see the, the, the hospitality and generosity that's being shown to come to their house. And he lifted up his eyes uh, and saw the travel in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? And he said, we're passing uh, from Bethlehem into Judah in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, which I come from. I went to Bethlehem to Judah and I'm going now to the house of the Lord. No one's taking me in my house. We have straw, we have feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant. And the young male man, servant says, there's no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for your wants. Just don't spend the night here. So he brought him back to his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and they ate and they drank. And if we just stopped there, man, it would be a great story. But it's, we don't stop there because it, it turns uh, in Verse 22. It turns bad. This is where verse 22 is the turn to where we start seeing the mirror of Genesis chapter 19. And they were making their hearts merry. Behold, the men of the city, the worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. Now this is exactly what's going on like it happened in Genesis 19. The same men in Sodom that wanted the two angels to come out there so they could know them, these men come up to the house and it says, when it says beating on the door, it's, this is literally hurling their bodies against the door. They are throwing themselves up against the door, trying to break it down to get that male servant to come out because they want to have sex with him. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, Know my brothers. Do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come to my house, don't do this vile thing. So they, they either want the young man or the Levite, but nevertheless, they want the man to come out and they want uh, to do this vile thing like they wanted to do in Sodom. So if we get to verse 23, if we end at verse 23, uh, before we get to 24, it's a similar situation. It, it holds out some measure of hope if, it, if there was no verse 24 and there was just verse 23. He's saying, I have guests in my house and I want to treat them right. Don't ask for this. And not only don't ask for this, what you want to do is wicked and evil. And he tells them, behold, what you want to do is wicked and vile. Don't do that. And if we stop there, things would be amazing. But as a fleeting hope because uh, the man does something in verse 24 that's absolutely sickening and horrifying. Much like Genesis 19, where Lot offers his two virgin daughters, this man says, behold, Here's my virgin daughter and this Levite's concubine. Let me bring them out to you. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Just as Lot offers his daughters to the Sodomites in Genesis 19, this man offers his daughter, his virgin daughter, and the Levite's concubine to the men of Gibeah, which is awful. And though the author doesn't make, as he narrates the story, a moral comment about it, put it in the context of both Genesis 19 and Judges 19, we see that he thinks it is pure evil. It is absolute pure evil. But unlike Genesis 19, where the angels cast all the men outside to be blind and they escape, unlike Genesis 19, the concubine here has no delivering angel that night in Gibeah. She has no delivering angel. She will have an absolute horrifying night. Why does the man, this old man, do this? Why does he do what Lot does? Why does he offer out his virgin daughter and the concubine? Tim Keller tells us. He does something horrific. He offers his own daughter and the Levite's concubine. And seeking to protect his house guest, He offers up two women to be raped. Why? Why does he not just offer the Levite, the Levite's manservant? After all, it is a man that they want. Why does he do that? Why does he give them what they want instead of offering up two women? Because the Ephraimite, that's the old man, the Levite, that's the the priest, and the concubine's father, what we read in the first part of the chapter, all three of them see women as property, And less valuable and more expendable than a man. This was the view of woman held by the surrounding cultures. And tragically, the concubine couldn't have been more safe in Jebus or in Gibeah. This is what they, the way that this culture viewed women. And this is the worst part. And this view was imbibed by the men of Israel. Rather than following the creation principle of God, that men and women are created in the image of God, and that men and women are both created equally and intrinsically valuable. They think women are expendable and men are more important. And so therefore he offers out these two women. This is why he does it. And so they said, here you can have these women violate them and do with what you want, seems good, but don't do this outrageous thing to this man, which let's just make, make sure we see. It's outrageous that you would offer out the women as well. Verse 25, but the men would not listen so what happens? The Levite, the priest that we started the story with, the man takes his concubine, not the virgin daughter, takes his concubine and makes her go outside to this, this Gibeamite worthless fellow's men. He throws her out there and it says, and throws her out there and it says, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And so he makes this lady go out there uh, And instead of sending either himself out there or the young male servant, she goes out there and she is, as it said, known and violated the entire night. Now, I just want to stop really fast and point out something. If there's any notion in your mind that thinks that this woman is getting what she rightly deserves because she was unfaithful to him in verse two, so this is her just punishment, um, you are... Totally outside the bounds of Christ like thinking. This is not what she deserves for two reasons. One, there is never a circumstance ever where a woman deserves to be sexually violated. Ever. It's a horrifying notion to say that a woman deserves to be raped. A woman never deserves this, no matter what she's wearing, no matter what she's done. Never does a woman ever deserve what she, some kind of uh, sexual violation. The second thing is the reason why we're outside of the bounds of Christ like thinking is this. Second, Christ forgives us and offers to cleanse us when we've been unfaithful. And so, the most Christ like thing this husband can do, then, therefore, this Levite should have done, is forgive her and treat her as forgiven and cleansed. And so, it is totally outside the bounds of Christianity to think that this is what she would deserve because she has been unfaithful. It's completely wrong. And now we see the evil unfold for the rest of the chapter. Verse 25 The men would not listen, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And so she makes her way back to this house. As the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. Verse 27 The master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, he went on to go on his way, and behold, the concubine is laying there at the door of the house with her hands upon the threshold. She had been violated and raped all night. She had made her way back to the threshold. She's just hanging on to the door of the porch, waiting for someone to come out, and this is what the man says. He said to her, get up. Let's go. It's just as horrific in English as it would have been in, in, in Hebrew spoken. This is this is remarkably insensitive. And then he put her on the donkey. Now, there's, there's, uh, there's no answer. There's, there's, there's commentators that go right here in verse 28 and say, perhaps she's already dead. Perhaps whatever happened brought her to death or perhaps she's still alive. There's no answer. What we, don't, we don't know if she's alive or not. But this is what happens after this. It still gets worse. Put her on the donkey and he took her home. And when he entered the house with her, He doesn't take care of her and nurse her back to health. He gets out his knife and he takes a hold of the concubine and he cuts her and divides her limb from limb into 12 different pieces and sent her to all the 12 tribes of Israel. And so all the tribes of Israel saw and said, such a thing has never happened or been seen in that day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. So when we read this, we can see just an unfolding of evil. He allowed his wife to be abused sexually and raped all night. We see in verse 27, the master rose up in the morning that he unbelievably sleeps all night while his wife is outside being raped all night, like it's no big deal. The writer refers to her as the master in verse 27 intentionally and not the husband as he does in verse 3, helping us see that he only thinks of her as property and not a person. Four, the graphic and sensitive bark that he says to her, get up, let's be going, helps us feel particularly repulsed at this terrible man speaking to her like someone would speak to an animal. This is how he views her. And more so we know that because this practice of uh, cutting up animals and sending them out to the 12 tribes is what they did. They, they did this to animals and he does it to his wife. So he just thinks of her as an animal, <clears throat> which is wrong. He butchers her, cuts her up, divides her with a knife, which is so wicked, and mails her parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. He does this not, because, not just because he treats her as an animal, but because he wants the 12 tribes of Israel to be enraged about what happens. So they'll all join forces with him and go back to Gibeah and fight the, fight the, the Benjamites. We see uh, in the next chapter, whenever he gathers them all around, he leaves out the, the detail that he's the one that sent her out to be raped. He leaves that detail out early in chapter 20. And so what we see then is that he wants vengeance on Gibeah, not because of the treatment to his wife, but instead because of the loss of property. He had a concubine and now he lost it. Keller says this is incomprehensible callousness and humanity towards the woman who was supposed to be his wife and his lover. And lastly, what we see going back in the story is the men of Gibeah, are wanting to practice homosexuality. They're wanting the man to come out so they can know him and they can rape him. And what we see here is this, uh, a horrific pattern of sexual brokenness. Now, let's just make sure we understand because we're all in the line of Adam, every single one of us are sexually broken. So if you have same-sex attraction, or if you have experienced sexual violence, or if you have been a perpetrator of sexual violence, um, I'm going to be as pastoral and as gentle as I can and help you see, because we're all in the line of Adam, every single one of us is sexually broken. So it's easy to look at this and say they're wicked. All of us are, outside of Christ, outside of our king. And so when we see this, you may be experiencing sexual brokenness as well. You might have tendencies towards homosexuality, which is wrong. you might have perpetrated something like this or you might have received it, male or female. You may have been a victim of sexual violence. And so as pastorally as I can be, I wanna say, we are here at Remedy Church to help you. We want to talk with you and counsel you and walk through this with you. You can come talk to me. Uh, Joe, one of our elders isn't here this morning, but you can talk to his wife, Jessica, who's here. Um, You can talk to Carrie Helton. She uh, has a degree in counseling, and she's agreed to want to talk to you. Jordan would love to talk to any of you. Uh, His wife, Danielle, also would, as well as Ruth, who's on staff here. Um, I would suggest you talk to someone to the same gender. But this is something that is pervasive both in men and women, and we want to talk to you. This does not go away. You can't just hope this You don't have to think about it, and one day it's gone. If these things have happened to you, or you've done these things, we want to be here for you. We want to talk you through this. If you've been a perpetrator, you should repent. The Lord's wrath would be upon you, and that's worse. If you've been sexually abused, you need to hear the doctrine of expiation. There's the doctrine of propitiation, which is that all the wrath of God was put on Jesus, not us, and we deserve the full wrath of God, but Jesus took it for us. Praise Lord that he is the wrath absorber of God. That's propitiation. But in the cross, there's something called the doctrine of expiation, which is all the sin, not that you've committed, but has been committed against you. You have been sinned against. The doctrine doctrine of expiation teaches us that the sins that have been done against us, Jesus comes as the great healer and expiates those things, takes those things away, cleanses you of the shame. It's a process. It's not like that'll happen this morning. But Jesus teaches us at the cross, he doesn't just forgive us of the sins that we've done, but he also cleanses us of the sins that have been done against us. And you need to hear that this morning. In every way, King Jesus is the opposite of this Levite. This Levite is a priest, but he is no priest. I don't mean this in the sense of revelation, but he is the anti-Christ, the opposite of Jesus in every way. He is a coward. Jesus is always courageous. He is a horrific wicked man. Jesus is holy and perfect. He is calloused to her suffering. He sleeps while she's raped. Jesus is holy, gentle, and perfect, and fully sympathetic to us, and empathizes with us, and is there with us in the most ter- terrific, or horrific times in our life. He gives her over to her destruction. Jesus gives himself over to destruction for our protection and our forgiveness. He takes her life as he cuts her up in the most satanic, disgusting way. Jesus gives his life over at the cross to Satan for a moment and dies a horrific death for us in our place. He is completely opposite to, than our king. Our king, Jesus, is someone you can run to and trust in every single way. Why is Judges 19 in the Bible then? I've hinted towards it, but why is it in the Bible? At least two reasons. At least two reasons. One, to show us just how depraved Israel had become, to warn us as the people of God, as the church, that we too can do this. We too can become like them without our king. Why is this in the Bible? Sodom in Genesis 19 is the great Old Testament example of rebellion against God that rightly brings itself upon the judgment of God. And the parallel between Sodom and Israelite Geba carries an obvious message. Here are the people of God. Genesis 19 was the pagans. Here it's the people of God. They've been given the covenants of Abraham and Moses. They've been given the law and the prophets, the tabernacle, the exodus, the more recent savior judges. And despite all this, they're no better than the Canaanites and the pagans. We are the people of God. We've been given the cross. We've been given Jesus. We've been given the Bible. We've been given forgiveness. And if we don't Live like the people of God, then we'll be just like them. So it's in here to show us just how wicked the people of God can become outside of our King Jesus and the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Despite all this, the people of God are no better than the Canaanites and no better than the pagan nations who received none of these blessings. God's people prove to be not just like Sodom, worse than Sodom. And so it's in here to warn us all, for sure, but it's not just a, a text of warning and caution. Even though it's wicked, it still is a a text of hope because it shows us just how desperate they should be and how we should be for our king. And this is why Israel and us need a king. We need King Jesus. Jesus is the one that will never shame you. This man shames her and brings shame upon her. Jesus will never do that, ever. He will never bring shame upon you. As a matter of fact, He will, through the process of time, help you understand the doctrine of expiation so that shame is gone. Jesus is the one that loves you perfectly. Unlike this man, he loves you perfectly. He always treats you the way that you should be treated in the image of God. Jesus is the perfect husband to his bride. He's the wicked husband. Jesus is the perfect husband to his bride, the church. He holds out for us as men the example of how we're supposed to love our wives, and he holds out the example for wives of how they should mimic the church and look to King Jesus and pray for their husband to be like King Jesus. He's the one that cleanses us from our sin, both what we've done and what's been done to us. Jesus is ultimately trustworthy. Jesus is infinitely sensitive. Jesus is absolutely amazing. And the point of this text, like every text, is to point us to our King Jesus, our only hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for my friends here this morning in this heavy, heavy, difficult sermon and this difficult, heavy text that for those that have experienced something as awful as this, that they would reach out to loved ones either in this service so that they know that are believers in Christ and come, we will come alongside them and love them and walk through this with them and cry with them and be there for them and comfort them and point them to Jesus. Their only hope and our only hope. And I pray for us all who are all, in some sense, sexually broken. And not just sexually broken, but broken in every way. That we would see your absolute need for King Jesus. That we would not try to live life without him. Or we end up just like these people. Help us as men cherish and love women. See them as image bearers. Protect them. Care for them. Never see them as property. Never devalue them. But instead, treat them as Jesus would treat them. There's so many heavy, heavy, heavy things in this text this morning. But you have brought us all here this morning sovereignly. You wanted everyone here to walk through this difficult text. And so I pray, Lord, that as we look at this, and it's disturbing, that we would have gone through the process of all that you would want us to feel, but more than that, Lord, that we would look to Jesus and say, you're our only hope. Come now, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We love you, and we trust you that you are the faithful, good king. Courageous, infinitely kind, infinitely sympathetic to us.